And so Ruth would go along behind the gleaners and gather up a little bit of grain and take it home for her and her mother-in-law to eat. And she was working in the field of Boaz, who was a very wealthy man. And when he saw this young lady there and observed how she behaved herself in a very proper manner, she didn't flirt with the men, and when the men tried to flirt with her, she would withdraw herself and sit aside and eat aside and drink aside and so forth. So he had great respect for her watching her, so he told the men to allow a few handfuls to fall on purpose for her, that she might gather a bit more than normally. Of course, all of this is a beautiful picture how when the Lord sees that we behave ourselves properly and walk circumspectly, he'll allow a few extra handfuls a handful is on purpose to fall for us to enjoy. <laughs> Give us a little bit extra to eat, praise the Lord, without having to sweat quite so much. Isn't God good? Anyway, then when Naomi begins to see that Ruth brings back a bit extra food, she begins to get a message in this and finds out what's going on, and she finds out that Boaz has noticed her, and then she remembers that Boaz is related to the family, and so in chapter 3 now, Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said unto her, My daughter, shall I not seek rest for thee, that it may be well with thee? She was laboring. She was poor. She had no inheritance, no certainty, no assurance for her old age or anything. And so Naomi wanted to see that she was cared for. And now is not Boaz of our kindred, with whose maidens thou wast? Behold, he went with barley tonight in the threshing floor. Wash thyself, therefore, and anoint thee. You do believe. You have found the kindred. Now wash yourself, baptize, receive the Holy Spirit, get anointed. Get thee down to the floor, and make not thyself known unto the man until he hath done eating and drinking. And it came to pass, when he lieth down, that thou shalt mark the place where he shall lie, and thou shalt go in and uncover his feet, and lay thee down, and he will tell thee what thou shalt do. And she said unto her, All that thou sayest unto me I will do. And she went down unto the floor, and did according to all that her mother-in-law bade her. As Paul said in Romans 6, You obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which I delivered unto you. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk, and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of corn. And she came softly, and uncovered his feet, and lay down at his feet. I don't, don't think that's the best place to lay down at his feet. And it came to pass at midnight that the man was afraid, and turned himself, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. And he said, Who art thou? And she answered, I am Ruth, thine handmaid. Spread therefore thy skirt over thine handmaid, for thou art a gaol. Thou art a near kinsman. I'm sorry, thou art a goel. I pronounced it wrong, goel. Thou art a near kinsman. And he said, Blessed be thou of the Lord my daughter, for thou hast showed more kindness in the latter end than at the beginning, insomuch as thou followest not young men, whether they be poor or rich. Now, isn't this interesting? He had noticed that, see? Now, she was a young widow. She was free to get married. And he was an old man. And yet, her devotion was toward him. Why? Because she had been so instructed by Naomi. You know, when a king's daughter comes to him and says, Oh, Daddy, I love you. I found a nice young man I love. I'm going off to get married and go away with him. The father is both sad and happy. He's happy the daughter has found himself herself a nice husband. 
but he said that she goes away. But let me ask you something. Suppose the king's wife comes in and says, Oh, husband, I love you. I found myself a charming young prince. I'm going away with him. <laughs> he would have a different attitude altogether, wouldn't he? So see, when the Lord looks down upon his daughters and they say, I want to get married and everything, well, that's fine. Praise God. But suppose his bride says that. Can you love the Lord with all your heart and mind and soul and strength and go running after the young men too? Or young women or whatever it may be, or money or house or land or whatever. So he had noted her that she did not follow after the young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, fear not, verse 11, I will do to thee that that thou requirest. For all the city of my people doth know that thou art a virtuous woman. So Boaz is willing to perform the work of the guile because she was a devoted woman, a virtuous woman, and an obedient woman. Verse 12, And now it is true that I am thy near guile. However, there is a guile nearer than I. Tarry this night, and it shall be in the morning, that if he will perform unto thee the part of a guile, well, let him do the guile's part. <clears throat> now these words here, the part of a kinsman, and do the kinsman's part, all those words are guile. In other words, I'll read it just putting that Hebrew word. Tarry this night, and it shall be in the morning, that if he will guile, the guile will. Let him guile. But if he will not guile, then I will guile. So that's what the word means, and we'll begin to see what this is. Read that verse 13 again. Tarry this night, and it shall be in the morning, that if he will perform unto thee the part of a kinsman, well, let him do the kinsman part. But if he will not do the part of a kinsman to thee, then will I do the part of a kinsman to thee, as the Lord liveth, lie down unto the morning. And she lay at his feet until the morning, and she arose up before one could know another. And he said, Let it not be known that a woman came into the floor. Also he said, Bring the veil that thou hast put upon thee, and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six measures of barley, and laid it on her, and she went away in the city. He gave her extra special revelation of the word of God that day. And she said, uh, and uh, 16, And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, Who art thou, my daughter? And she told her all that the man had done to her. And she said, The six measures of barley gave him me. For he said to me, Go not empty unto thy mother-in-law. Then she said, Sit still, my daughter, until thou know how the matter will fall. For the man will not rest until he have finished the thing, the this work that he was going to do, this goyle that he's going to do. Now, verse 4, this explains what the goyle does. Then went Boaz up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the goyle of whom Boaz spoke, the kinsman of whom Boaz spoke, came by, unto whom he said, Ho, oh, such a one, turn aside, sit down. And he turned aside and sat down. He took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit ye down here. And they sat down, and he said, Unto the kinsman, unto the goyle, Naomi that has come again out of the country of Moab selleth a parcel of land which was our brother Limelech's. And I thought to advertise thee, saying, Buy it before the inhabitants and before the elders of my people. If thou wilt redeem it, redeem it. But if thou wilt not redeem it, then tell me that I may know. For there is none to redeem it besides thee, and I after thee. And he said, I will redeem it. 
Now this is what the word God means, to redeem something. Then says Boaz, What day thou buyest the field of the hand of Naomi, thou must buy it also of Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to raise up the name of the dead unto his inheritance. And the kinsman said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I mar mine own inheritance. Redeem thou my right to thyself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was a matter in former time in Israel concerning redeeming and concerning changing. For to confirm all things, a man plucked off his shoe and gave it to his neighbor, and this was a testimony in Israel. Therefore the kinsman said unto Boaz, Buy it for thee. So he drew off his shoe. And Boaz says unto the elders and unto all the people, Ye are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Kilian's and Malon's of the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of Malon, have I purchased or redeemed to be my wife, to raise up the name of the dead unto his, upon his inheritance, that the name of the dead be not cut off from among his brethren, and from the gate of this place ye are witnesses this day. And all the people that were in the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman that is come into thine house like Rachel and like Leah, which too did build the house of Israel, and do thou worthily in Ephrata and be famous in Bethlehem. And let thy house be like the house of fairies, whom Hamar bare unto Judah, of the seed which the Lord shall give thee of this young woman. So Abbas took Ruth, and she was his wife, and when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bare. And the woman, you know the story, out of her came down in verse 21, uh, Boaz begot Obed, and Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. And it's interesting, when the genealogy of Christ is given in, in the New Testament, it shows the genealogy through Boaz. So although he raised up seed to his brother's name, nevertheless, God reckoned it to his name. So here there was a nearer kinsman. And the nearer kinsman's first thought was, yes, I'd like to buy the property. Then Boaz says, well, remember the law of the kinsman is you buy the property, you take the wife also and bring up children to your brother. He says, no, no, I don't want to do that. That would mar my inheritance. Now here the Lord, of course, he's our Goel, he's our near kinsman, and he wants to redeem us. Now this is to redeem all that we have lost. Now what did we lose way back yonder, huh? What was the piece of land we lost? The Garden of Eden, huh? <laughs> that was our, our land, and we lost it. Garden of Eden, oh, the glory of God, as Brother Michael said, the glory of God. Heaven, New Jerusalem, Zion, we lost the whole thing. And here our Redeemer says he's going to buy it all back for us, but the only thing is he has to marry us also. <laughs> he can't just buy back the land, he has to buy the land and us also. So this is what redeeming is. It's redeeming us back to God, plus all of our lost inheritance is brought back also. But now who's this nearer Goel? Huh? Who's this nearer kinsman? that says, yeah, I'd like to buy that too. I want to get Jerusalem and Zion. I want to get the Garden of Eden and I want to get the glory of God, all those things. Let me buy it. He says, all right, but you'll have to marry the woman also. They say, oh, no, I can't do that. I'll mar my own inheritance. Who do you think that nearer kinsman is? If if the Lord is our, our guile that wants to redeem us and marry us and bring forth fruit, bring forth King David out of our relationship, who do you think the nearer kinsman is? 
flesh. Yeah, look in First Corinthians chapter fifteen. From forty four to forty six. Well, read from we'll just read forty five to forty seven. Or from forty five to forty eight. First Corinthians chapter fifteen, forty five to forty eight. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul, and the last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Albeit that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural, and afterward that which is spiritual. The first man is the earth, is of the earth earthy, the second man is the Lord from heaven. As is the earthy, such are they that are earthy, and as is the heavenly, such are they that are heavenly. As we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. Now, so the first intent to redeem is usually our own effort, the effort of the flesh, shall we say. We try and redeem ourselves, and of course we fail. Then of course the Lord has to come and redeem us, and he does so by making us his bride. And what does it mean I'll, I'll mar my own inheritance? What does it mean that this first kinsman, if he tried to redeem, he would mar his own inheritance? Well, see, the flesh has hope also, doesn't it? Our flesh has a hope of inheritance. We're waiting for a new body. Our flesh is waiting to rise from the dust also and to inherit eternal life. But if we try and save ourselves by the flesh, then even our flesh will have no hope of eternal life. The Bible says we're saved by hope. That hope is the redemption of the body. So then finally he says, all right, we'll let the spirit redeem. We'll let the Lord from heaven redeem. Then he takes off his shoe. Well, first there are the ten elders there. Now, who are these ten elders, and why does he take off the shoe? Well, Michael, you've heard this teaching before. Who are the ten elders that are sitting there by the gate? These are the ten judges. They're going to judge about the who does the, who does the right redeeming and who does not. Ten commandments. Ten commandments, the law. We must fulfill all righteousness. So either the flesh has to fulfill all righteousness or grace does. See? When we finally yield to grace and allow the Lord to redeem us, don't we fulfill all righteousness? Yea, more so. Then why did they take off the shoe? New walk. A new walk. We're not going to walk in the flesh any longer. We're going to walk in the spirit. So, anyway, this gives us the meaning in this beautiful little story of the Ga'al, Jehovah Ga'al, the Lord, our Redeemer. So he purchases us unto himself, delivers us out of our poor, miserable widowhood of death. And, and she was married to or these two sons, married to one of the sons of Elimelech. The two sons named Malon and Kilion means sorrow and pining. So... She was living down in Moab and sorrow and pining and and God was no longer king and the husbands die and she's poor and destitute and working hard out in the field trying to get enough food to eat. And all of a sudden this kind man comes and performs the part of the kinsman. He's a Gaal to her, redeems her, marries her, and brings forth the kingly line of David from her life. So that's what is done for us through the blood of Jesus Christ. We are redeemed unto God. 
Now the fourth mean that that was the third mean. The first is atonement, the second is remission, the third is redemption. Now the fourth <coughs> benefit of the blood of Christ working in our lives, we read in Colossians chapter one, verses twenty to twenty-two. Colossians chapter one, verses twenty and twenty-two, and having made peace through the blood of his cross. By him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. So here the blood makes peace. The blood makes peace. Now I'm going to give the Greek word here, and that's about the last of the Greek words I'll give. Maybe one more later on. The Greek word here is Irene, from which we get the name Irene, or in Spanish the name Irene, it means peace. And it means quietness, it means rest, it means set back together again, set it one, it means oneness. Um, in Greek it's E-I-R-E-N-E, -E, pronounced Irene, very much like the Spanish name of the woman, Irene, Irene, means peace. It, hmm? Irene in Spanish, yeah, Irene in English. In Acts chapter 7, verse 26, <coughs> there's an interesting use of the word, which gives you an idea of how the word is used. Acts chapter 7, verse 26 uh, we, we read up in verse 25, For he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. And the next day he showed himself unto them as they strove, and would have set them at one again, saying, Sirs, ye are brethren, why do ye wrong one another? Those words, set them at one again, are this Greek word, erene. Set them at one again. They were fighting, and Moses wanted to create peace. He wanted to be a peacemaker. In fact, this is the word used for peacemaker. Blessed are the peacemakers. But here in the same verse, it talks about reconciling. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. You who are enemies in wicked works now he hath reconciled I'm going to give the Greek word for reconciled we've had the concept of reconciliation before but not the Greek word for reconciliation I think it's an interesting word it's apokatalasso it's A-P-O K-A T-A-L-L-A-S-S-O. Apokatalasso, you remember that word apo we had before means off. But katalasso means to make a compound of two different things. If you studied chemistry in school, you know you can have two entirely different things 
like oil and water, you cannot mix them together, right? But a compound is when you take two different things and put them together and make something new, but it's, it's a unity. For example, if you take hydrogen and oxygen and mix them together, what do you get? You get water. That's called a compound. So if you take God and man and make them into one, then you have done this word of reconciliation, apocatalasso. You've made them one. So this is what is accomplished by the blood of Jesus Christ. It makes one out of two different things. This verse is shown us, the same word is used in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 16. And that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. So here, of course, it's talking about the enmity between the Jews and the Gentiles as well as between man and God. We'll read verses 15 and 16. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make himself of twain one new man, so making peace, that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby. So here the verse, I'm sorry, is verse 15, having made peace. But let's read this group of verses here because now we come to the fifth effect of the blood of Christ. We'll read from verse 13 to 18. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. So the fifth effect of the blood of Christ is to make us nigh, bring us to God, bring us to the family of God, make us close to God, and make us close to the commonwealth of Israel or the promises of God. We really have to start up here in verse, verse 11. Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called circumcision in the flesh made by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were afar off, are made nigh by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace, who hath made both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having a excuse me, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make it himself of twain one new man, so making peace, that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which are afar off and to them which are nigh, that through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. So this is accomplished by the blood of Jesus Christ. Christ was born a Jew, according to the flesh. But when he died, he rent that veil in two. Now this coming nigh is to bring us in the most holy place, in within the veil. So that Jewish flesh was torn, and now he became the Savior to all men. Before his flesh was torn, before his blood was shed, he came to the lost sheep of the house of Israel only. He could not really be for the salvation of the uttermost parts of the earth. So, so for the, through the shedding of his blood, he now reconciles all men into one. 
making peace between man and peace between man and God. So if, again, if we do not have peace with our fellow men, if we have aught against anyone, we cannot look at a brother peacefully in the face and speak peaceably unto man. It's because the blood of Jesus Christ has not worked yet to accomplish this in our lives. When we come to the cross and sit at the foot of the cross and allow the blood to cleanse us, then peace will come. Of course, peace is the first result of coming to Christ at salvation. Now he said, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I will give you peace. Then he said, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, and you will find peace on your souls. So there's a further or a deeper peace and a deeper peace and a deeper peace in our flesh, in our spirit, and in our soul, to the very depth of our being. We must experience the peace of God so that we can live peaceably with all men. Even our most bitter enemies, we can live peaceably with them. Although they may rail at us, we do not re re revile back at them. So if at any time your peace is lost, and this is something that the servants of God especially must be very, very quick to discern. If at any instant you lose your peace, even for a second, Stop everything and find out what happened. Look in Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. Let's read together. Be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. This word keep, what is that translated uh, more accurately from the Greek? You know, umpire. So when you're out on the field playing some sport and you're running with a ball or you're competing with your fellow man, all of a sudden you hear a beep. What do you do? You stop and find out what went wrong. That's what the umpire does. So if at any time in your Christian walk or in your service or your ministry, all of a sudden you hear a beep inside the heart, you lose your peace, stop immediately, find out where the transgression was, and go back and start over again. This is of absolute importance if we are to be continually under the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of Christ maintains our peace continually. And a servant of God should never, never lose his temper or his anger because we are called to be peacemakers. God hath reconciled us unto himself, therefore we now have the ministry of reconciliation. One of the principal aspects of our ministry is a ministry of reconciliation. And if we don't have peace, how can we preach the gospel of peace, the good tidings of peace? If we can't get along with our fellow men, how can we go out and reconcile other men? Moses had to go out and try and stop these two Jews from fighting. That's what our ministry is, isn't it? If in any instance you're losing your peace, go back to the foot of the cross and be cleansed in the blood. The blood will restore peace to your soul. Until in the most stressful times, you can be praising God. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. 
Let your self-control be known to all men. The Lord is right here. Let the peace of God that passes all understanding keep your heart and mind through Christ Jesus. Yeah, but what am I supposed to do about this problem? Let your request be made known unto God in prayer. Bring it all back to the Lord and leave it there. And rejoice in the Lord. This is all possible as you spend your time under the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Now the sixth concept we want to study is Acts chapter 20, verse 28. Acts chapter 20, 28. Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. Now we could put this, if you want to, under redeem, which means to purchase also, or a separate heading. These outlines are not divinely inspired, so you could rearrange your own outline the way you want to. But we are purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are his special treasure, his peculiar treasure. We are his inheritance. In Ephesians chapter 1, it talks about the riches of God's inheritance in the saints. We, but the thought here more is not that we've been redeemed, purchased back to God, but that we are his purchased possession. We are his wealth. We are his inheritance. We are his glory. So we are of great value in God's sight. Ephesians 1.14, read from verse 12. Read from verse, of course, all the whole chapter is good. We'll start with. 10. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, even in him. This, of course, he does by the blood of Christ, as we've studied. In whom also we have obtained an inheritance, which we have studied by the blood of Christ, the Gale, being predestinated according to the purpose of him who worketh all things after the counsel of his own will, that we should be to the praise of his glory, who first trusted in Christ, in whom he also trusted after that ye heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that ye believed ye were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, which is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession, unto the praise of his glory. And this is the reason I've divided the word purchased from redemption, because in this verse, both verses are used. We are already his purchased possession. He purchased us by the cost of his own blood. But the final aspect of redemption will be when we are gathered together unto him. So he's given us the Holy Spirit, which is the down payment against that final redemption of the purchased possession. And this is all through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Now the next, number seven, is the blood justifies us. Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Romans chapter 5, verse 9. We'll read from verse 8. But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So here we were justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. Some people have again made a play of words here with the English word justified to 
stretch it out and say it means just as if I never sinned. Like the word atonement is stretched out to mean at one minute. These are just happenstances with the English language, but really they come out quite close to the real meaning. Justified is to make us just, to make us right, with nothing charged against us. Indeed, just as if I'd never sinned. So the blood of Christ, when it washes away our sins, as we mentioned yesterday, to be remembered no more forever. And we must have this realization that we stand before God totally justified, totally acquitted. The story is told of a man who was up for trial, and he was indeed guilty, and there was no way he was going to escape condemnation, and he would have to go to the electric chair. But before he went into the trial, the, the, the king gave him a pardon. And so the king told this man, he said, now, I don't want anybody to know I've given you a pardon. So you put it in your pocket. And if in your trial the judge finds you innocent, then you can keep it quiet. But if the judge finds you guilty, then you can pull this pardon out. So the man was guilty, all right, but he went with his pardon in his pocket. And the whole trial went along, and all the witnesses came against him, and they read off all the long list of crimes that he had committed, and the prosecuting attorney with his two horns and long tail was really letting him have it, and my, the case was going bad against him. He had committed so many crimes. And finally, when the judge was to pronounce sentence, he, the judge was very angry. He said, I've never seen such an, such a, an arrogant, such a, a careless man. Here he stood to this whole trial, and look at him, how casual he is, how relaxed he is, how smiling he is. We've read off all this list of accusations against him. He has no fear at all. I sentence him to die by hanging at dawn. Then the man pulled out of his pocket, went up to the judge's desk and said, I've got a pardon. <laughs> then he understood why he was so cool and calm while the charges were being laid out against him. So I don't know if I told this story here recently, but Sister Alice and Eben and I had opened the faith home in Washington. Pastor Sambal was traveling around. He came from a place where somebody had told him 20 minutes of stuff against me. And so he was really excited. So he said, Brother Don, look what I heard against you. So he told all these things, and I just sat there calm and cool and smiling. Sister Alice knew all those charges were false in this case, anyway. And uh, so when it, when it was all finished, I just kept quiet. She said, well, aren't you going to answer him? And uh, I said, no. I said, he just spent 20 minutes charging me with false accusations. But I could talk two hours charging me of true accusations. So I think I'll let 20 minutes of false accusations go rather than two hours of true accusations. <laughs> That's a slightly different example. But anyway, when we know that We've been acquitted. Who cares what they say about us? And on the day of judgment, it may well be that all kinds of our enemies will open their mouth. The Bible says no tongue shall prosper, but they may wag. So have you absolute confidence that all your past has been acquitted, that you have been justified of all things that which you cannot be justified on the law of Moses? Now that is, I think, 
Bring it more up to date. Look in the book of Acts 13. Acts chapter 13. Verses 38 and 39. Be known unto you therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins, and by him all that believe are justified from all things from which he could not be justified by the law of Moses. Now this is not speaking just about being justified from our former sins. This speaks about living a justified life. Now you may say, yes, I know my former sins are forgiven me, but I'm just not measuring up today. Now I think this is where mostly it hits us. Somehow we know we still come short of the glory of God, don't we? And we walk around, you can see nothing of his face. You can tell by looking at Ronnie, see? His whole face sags and he walks around. And otherwise he's smiling real big. And you can tell exactly how he feels. And he feels unrighteous. He feels unjust. Not only Ronnie, everybody else you can tell too. Or they're getting irritable. That's because something inside is condemning them. And all of this is because we do not know the value of the blood of Jesus Christ. That's why I recommend you read this book called Calvary Road. It shows the secret of continual revival. And that is, at any given instance that your conscience pricks you, in any instance you lose your peace, in any instance you lose your joy of first love, immediately go to the cross and get cleansed of the blood. Immediately. And you can be restored instantly and go right on without spending weeks and months or days or hours dragging around and snapping at everybody and grousing and falling asleep in prayer and not being able to serve the Lord with joy and gladness. God doesn't want us to remain fallen, not for a moment. Look how quickly David got back up again. Huh? Look what David said. Psalm 51, he admits he sinned, verse 1, he asks God to blot out his transgressions, he asks God to wash him thoroughly from his iniquity, cleanse him from his sins, verse 3, he acknowledges his sins, verse 4, he acknowledges his sin against God alone, verse 5, he admits he's a sinner from conception. Verse 6, he acknowledges that God desires truth and righteousness in the inward parts. Verse 7, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. What's the meaning of hyssop here? Anyone not know? Hmm? Well, when they, in the, when they took the blood of the Passover lamb, what did they do with it? They dip the hyssop in it and sprinkle it on the doorposts. So this means the blood. Hyssop means the blood. It was a little brush they made out of a plant called the hyssop plant. And what he means is blood. But he's, <coughs> what he's saying is the sprinkling. We're going to study sprinkling in a moment. 
purge me with the sprinkling of the blood and I shall be clean. Wash me, I shall be whiter than snow. Uh, and on he goes. Uh, make me to hear joy and gladness. He wants to come back to revival right away. Hide thy face from my sins. Blot out all my trans iniquities. Create me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast not me away from thy presence. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. Uphold me with thy free spirit. Then will I teach transgressors thy way, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Verse 15. Open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. Verse 14. And my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. So, you see how quickly he's back up praising God again. It's remarkable. It's wonderful. And that's all because of faith he had in the cleansing power of the blood. So, we should not remain fallen, not for a moment. The very moment we realize what's happened, we realize why we lost our peace, we realize how we got defiled, you can run to the cross immediately and be restored through the blood of Jesus Christ because we are righteous before God when we trust in the blood of Jesus Christ. In fact, you can keep yourself from even falling by picking up the first wayward thought that comes because... We are tempted when we're drawn away by our own lusts. So the very minute any lustful or any selfish thought or desire starts to even come upon us, we can run to the cross immediately and be cleansed instantly. And we do not have to even fall into a state of discouragement and despondency and condemnation and guilt. And this is how our thoughts can be sanctified. I think I shared with this last time I was here. And I had battled for years with my thought life and finally kind of gave up and couldn't get anywhere until I found out that evil thoughts come out of the heart. And so after that discovery and revelation from God, no sooner even any kind of a wrong thought, be it unclean or be it thought of vengeance or worldliness or whatever, any kind of a thought which is not according to Godliness even begins to form in my mind, Immediately, I just give my heart back to the cleansing of the blood, and it disappears immediately. This is my testimony for God who knows I tell the truth. And I praise God for a peaceful mind. <laughs> Hallelujah. If you go immediately to the blood, now the thing is to go to the blood instantly. And we'll go on now to the next one is the purging by the blood. John 1, uh, 1 John 1, 9. Here the word is to purge or to cleanse or to purify. All these words are used here in Psalm 51, but we'll read them in the New Testament. 1 John chapter 1, and we'll go on now to the next one, is the purging by the blood. John 1, uh, 1 John 1, 9. Here the word is to purge or to cleanse or to purify. All these words are used here in Psalm 51, but we'll read them in the New Testament. 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. Verse. From verse 7 to 9. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ his Son cleanses us from all sins. And if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves that the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us 
from all unrighteousness. So here it's a matter of walking in the light. Now, light is that which manifests everything. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. But instantly that we acknowledge our sin and bring it to the light, come to the light, then the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us. So this is another virtue of the blood. It's cleansing, purifying, purging benefit. Now this Greek word is interesting, I think. It's katharizo, K-A-T-H-A-R-I-Z-O. And what's the English word like this that we use in, in, in medicine? The catharize. You've heard of catharizing, the doctors do? Well, it's interesting. You know that uh, woman who had a flow of blood and her blood was staunched, catharized? She was purged from her uncleanness. Eh? Look at another reference here in Luke chapter 2, verse 22. 2, verse 22. And when the days of her purification, according to the law of Moses, were accomplished, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. The word purification here is this Hebrew word, katharizo. Let's see where that law of purification comes from in Leviticus chapter 12. In Leviticus chapter 12, the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, saying, If a woman hath conceived seed and born a man-child, then shall she be unclean seven days. According to the days of the separation of, for her infirmity, she shall be unclean. And the eighth day of the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised, and she shall then continue in the blood of her purifying three and thirty days. She shall touch no hallowed thing, nor come into the sanctuary, until the days of her purifying be fulfilled. But if she bear a maid child, then she shall be unclean two weeks, as in her separation, and she shall continue in the blood of her purifying threescore and six days. And when the days of her purifying are fulfilled for a son or for a daughter, she shall bring a lamb of the first year for a burnt offering and a young pigeon or a turtle dove for a sin offering unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation of the priest, and for who shall offer it before the Lord and make an atonement for her, and she shall be cleansed from the issue of her blood. This is the law for her that hath born a male or a female. Now, I was at a seminar for pastors, about 1,200 pastors there, and Bill Gothard was there. How many of you ever heard of Bill Gothard, I think, so you have? Anyway, if he ever has a seminar here in New York, I do recommend as many as possible go. His Bible teaching is very good. Bill Gothard. He conducts these seminars called Basic Youth, Youth Conflicts. And uh, he teaches the Bible very, very well. It's all biblical. And he is very uh, solid on thus saith the word of the Lord. So it's sort of a Christian psychology and philosophy concerning how to live in our daily life here, not doctoral, but it's how to walk. And it's all biblical and it's very sound and very good. And he was teaching these pastors down there in Washington last week, and we had a very nice time there all day long session with him. 
And uh, he said it's unfortunate that many Christians sort of push the Old Testament away and say it has nothing for us today. He said it is the word of God, man shall live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. He said although we do not approach it as legalism, nor try and justify ourselves by its precepts, nevertheless its teachings are valuable for us today. And he brought out this chapter here. He said there's a great plague going on in America today. It's the plague of women having hysterectomies. He said it's getting out of hand. And he said one reason is they do not go by this chapter 12 of Leviticus. If husband and wife would abstain according to this law here, then many benefits would come. One is, of course, he said they would not have so much need for hysterectomies. He said hysterectomy is almost unknown amongst the Orthodox Jews. Also, cancer of the female reproducing organs is virtually unknown amongst the female Jews, and they have thought possibly because of the right of circumcision. If husband and wife abstain according to this law here, and according to the law of a woman when she's in her time of period, that many, many benefits come. One is the womb and the uterus are much healthier, stronger, and not diseased and not torn. And the woman is much healthier. Second, he said, the relationship between the husband and wife is much more wholesome because the wife respects the husband for his willingness to uh, discipline himself for the love of the wife which causes the wife to have great respect. And I have to admit that many of the married believers that I've talked to have told me that they despise their husbands and they feel like prostitutes because the husband only desires to satisfy his own passions. But if the husband would honor the word of God here, she would have great respect for him as a man of God, as a man of discipline, as a man who respects and loves his wife. Third, he says, that he believes that if couples will discipline themselves according to this chapter and the portion also of a woman in her uh, time of period, that God then will take full responsibility for family planning. And all this great fear and perversion and corruption in the land over family planning is because men are undisciplined. And so he believes that you can trust God to open and close the womb if you obey God concerning the marital relationships. Now, I was very thrilled to see a, a well-known public preacher who preaches mostly amongst the Baptists, but of course many Pentecostals go to his teachings also. These 1,200 pastors that were present, I think most of them were Baptist pastors, but so boldly make statements like that. In fact, he boldly preached divine healing through observing the precepts of God concerning how we treat our bodies. And I thought that was very well brought out also. Now, just let me ask you, of course, we approach this also from the spiritual meaning. But as we, as we understand from the Holy Spirit, the spiritual interpretation of these portions, that does not mean they have no natural benefit. We would make a mistake if we only interpret the Old Testament spiritually and ignore its wise counsels 
in on the natural level also. Now, spiritually, what would be the reason for two different time periods here of cleansing, one for a male and one for a female? Huh? If you bring forth a female, you're unclean for a longer period of time than if you bring forth a male. What would be the spiritual meaning of that? Could be. I, I've heard it interpreted as if you if you bring forth some good thing, you're unclean. If you bring forth some bad thing, you're unclean. Some useless thing. <laughs> if you bring forth a useless thing, you're more unclean than if you you're unclean for a longer period of time than you bring forth some use from useful thing. I don't know if <laughs> that's the best interpretation or not. But that was from the old Jewish point of view was that a woman was not as useful as a man was. But anyway, don't be offended at that interpretation, but I've heard that. But the thought could be true that if you bring forth something that would be uh, useful for the service of God, then you're unclean also. You're still an unprofitable servant. But if you do something which is not so beneficial, then you're unclean even longer. But whatever it is, the cleansing comes through the sacrifice of the blood of the bullock or feet of the turtle doves or whatever. But we have the blood of Jesus Christ, so we can come for a cleansing. And I think it is good if you preach a poor message, you pray for somebody sick, they don't get healed, then you better go and get cleansed in the blood of Jesus, right? And if you preach a real good message and pray for some of the sick that they do get healed, you should also go back to the blood of Jesus. Humble yourself and get cleansed, lest pride or whatever should corrupt you again. But now, in chapter 13 also, and on through chapters 15, Well, in chapter 13 and 14, we have the law of leprosy. We don't have time to read it all, but I'd like to just look through a little bit. <clears throat> when a man shall have in the skin of his flesh a rising, a scab, or a bright spot, and it be in the skin of his flesh like the plague of leprosy, then he shall be brought unto Aaron the priest, or unto one of his sons the priest. And the priest shall look on the plague in the skin of the flesh. And when the hair on the plague is turned white, the plague in sight be deeper than the skin of his flesh, it is the plague of leprosy. And the priest shall look on him and pronounce him unclean. If the bright spot be white in the skin of his flesh, and in sight be not deeper than the skin, and the hair thereof be not turned white, then the priest shall shut him up that hath the plague seven days more. Then he examines him seven days later. And if it is not spreading, if it is not deeper than the skin, then he shall just wash his clothes and be clean. But if it is getting deeper and spreading abroad, then it is leprosy, and the priest shall pronounce him unclean. Down in verse 8. Won't take time to read it all. Now this means that we have to watch out for people's lives. And if we see some defect in their life, we have to observe and find out whether it's just skin deep or deeper than the skin. Now, it's skin deep, it's in the flesh, it manifests itself in the flesh. But it may be just on the level of personality, not on the level of character. What's the difference? Well, for example, foolish talk. Those that say foolish things, joking or whatever. That could be a very deep character fault. Coming from a lack of seriousness with God. 
you'll find people who do not fear God are likely to be joking and jocular and light talking. They have no fear of God. You may have people that do not have any of the wisdom of God. There's no maturity in their character. Therefore, their speech is light and foolish. On the other hand, you may have a person that otherwise, in the depths of his being, is a solid believer, but he, had a, he has a bad habit of light talk. That's just on his personality. That's the way his personality is fixed. For example, you can have some people who are very, very jolly in their personality, but in their character, they're morose and even suicidal. This Red Skelton, I think it is, you've heard of him, a comedian, very famous comedian. I think it's he. Anyway, some comedian like him, was, the story was told that he's always joking, not only on the stage, not only on the screen, not only on the radio, not only on television, even with his friends, even with his family, all the time joking, joking, joking. And finally, some of his friends told him, he said, <coughs> Can't you just calm down for a little bit and be normal? He said, I'm afraid to stop joking. I'm such a miserable man inside, I'd end up and have a nervous breakdown. Yes, the bundle of, of uh, distraught confusion inside, see. I heard another story. I, don't, I, don't, I shouldn't have used the name of Red Skelton. I don't know who it is, really. But <clears throat> you've heard of some of these comedians that have almost committed suicide and so forth and so on. I heard the story told, I think it's in a gospel tract of a man who went to see a psychiatrist here in New York. And he said, such despair and despondency and gloom about to commit suicide. So the psychiatrist recommended one thing after another. He said, I've tried that, I've tried that, I've tried that. Finally, the psychiatrist says, well, only one, one more remedy I can recommend. There's a famous comedian in New York. Everybody says when you go see him, you just laugh the whole time. So why don't you go see him? He said, I am that comedian. <laughs> so, so that's the difference between something on the surface and something deep down inside. See? Maybe getting upset with people. You have to see whether that's just a surface bad habit or whether it's coming from the depth of a troubled soul. So the priest has to be able to Look at that. Now, continue reading on here. And uh, verse 12. Well, no, what does it mean now? What does it mean now? If, if the hair in the, in the blemish is white, then it's leprosy. If it's not white, it's not leprosy. What does that mean? Well, see, when you have gray hair, if you still have false at gray hair age, that's pretty serious, isn't it? <laughs> you should get rid of all these personality quirks before you get gray hair. See? Look at verse 11. It is an old leprosy in the skin of his flesh that the priest shall pronounce him unclean and he shall not shut him up for he is unclean. In other words, you don't have to observe it for another seven days. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. So if you, in your old age you've got some faults, man, you're stuck with them. <laughs> so you better get them corrected before you get too old. And that doesn't necessarily mean physical age, that means spiritual age. <laughs> so surely don't think there's no hope for you and me. <laughs> it doesn't mean physical age, it means spiritual age. The old hair, the gray hair, the Bible says, is a sign of wisdom. So if in our wisdom we haven't corrected our faults, then how should we correct them? 
Now look at verses 12 and 13. And if a leprosy break out abroad in the skin, and the leprosy cover all the skin of him that hath the plague, from his head even to his foot, wheresoever the priest looketh, then the priest shall consider, and behold, if the leprosy have covered all his flesh, he shall pronounce him clean that hath the plague. It is all turned white, he is clean. Now what does that mean? Here if you have a little fault, you're unclean. But here finally you get covered from top of the head, the sole of the foot. I mean, you're a total, complete sinner. Then you say you're all right. What does that mean? Well, so you might confess one fault. You might reckon, you might bring out one fault. Okay, you get cleansed that one fault. But suppose you finally come before the cross and say, Lord, there's no good thing in me at all. I'm totally undone. I'm altogether unclean. There's no soundness from the top of the head, the sole of the foot. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. The Lord says you're clean. <laughs> because the law of cleansing is that the blood cleanses us from all of our leprosies, right? Then it goes on, a lot of interesting things here. The one I like is about the fretting leprosy. <laughs> Have you read about that? <laughs> or in verse 51 of chapter 13, the end it says, the plague is a fretting leprosy. It is unclean. How many of you have fretting leprosies? Huh? Do you worry about this and fret about that? That's <laughs> a fretting leprosy. <laughs> and then chapter 14 is about the law of cleansing. Remember when Jesus healed the lepers, he told them to go and offer up the sacrifice that Moses demanded. That's here in chapter 14. This shall be the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. He shall be brought on the priest, and the priest shall go forth out of the camp. The priest shall look, and behold, if the plague of leprosy be healed in the leper, then he has to bring, of course, uh, the sacrifice. Then shall the priest command to take for him that is to be clean, cleansed two birds alive and clean in cedar wood and scarlet and hyssop. Now this hyssop is to dip in the blood. See verse 6. For the living bird he shall take it, and the cedar, and the wood, and the scarlet, and the hyssop, and shall dip them, and the living bird, in the blood of the bird that was killed over the running water, and they shall sprinkle blood seven times, and shall pronounce him clean. Verse 7. We won't have time to read all of this. So, all these various cleanlinesses. Now look over in chapter 15. Verse 2, speak of the children of Israel and say unto them, When any man hath a running issue out of his flesh, because of his issue he is unclean. Now, some people have a running issue, or as the Bible says, the seed of copulation goes out from a man. Wherever he sits is unclean. Spiritually, what is our seed of copulation? It's our words. So if you have a running mouth, a fool is known by his what? By his much speaking. And the multitude of words never lack sin. So if we have a running issue, anger, pride, jealousy, we have some wives that are jealous of their husbands, it's, you just, it's, it cannot be corrected. A terrible thing. Until they acknowledge it's a sin. Anger the same way. Whatever it is, foolish talk, whatever it is, lightheartedness, prayerlessness, no zeal for souls, whatever your problem is, when you come and confess it as a sin, then the blood of Jesus Christ will cleanse you. The blood of Jesus Christ does not cleanse our faults. It does not cleanse our bad habits. It cleanses our sins. 
So wherever a problem is, and all these represent different kinds of sins, you bring them to the blood, and the blood will cleanse us. Chapter 14, verse 25. And he shall kill the lamb of the trespass offering, and the priest shall take some of the blood of the trespass offering and put it on the tip of the right ear of him that is to be cleansed, and upon the thumb of his right hand, and upon the great toe of his right foot. And the priest shall pour the oil in the palm of his own left hand, and the priest shall sprinkle with his right finger some of the oil that is in his left hand seven times before the Lord, and on and on, and so shall he be cleansed. So, whatever it is, we need to be washed in the blood, the blood sprinkled. Now, this is the next thing I want to bring out. It's the sprinkling of the blood. The sprinkling of of the blood. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. This is all under the eighth point, all under purging. Because this purging is done by sprinkling. This purging is done by sprinkling. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 13 and 14. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of an heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifieth to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now the sprinkling of the blood takes us back to the Passover lamb. That blood was sprinkled upon the lintel upon the doorposts. And no sooner God saw the blood that he passed over, all condemnation was gone. So, this is to purge our conscience, or purge our being from the consciousness of sin. We should not be conscious of our unworthiness. We should not be conscious of our uncleanness. We should not be dwelling on our faults, much less on anybody else's faults. And as I say again, as I said yesterday, the reason we are conscious of other people's faults is because we feel the presence of our own faults. That's why we see the specks because of the beams. And the blood of Jesus Christ, when we trust in the blood, purges our conscience that we can serve God with an open face, joy and happiness, with no guilt feeling at all in the presence of God. Chapter 11, verse 28. Through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch him. Verse 27, 28. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Through faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of the blood. So this is by faith in the blood. Faith in the efficacy of the blood. <clears throat> that I am righteous before God, my sins are forgiven, I'm redeemed, I'm purchased, I'm belong to God, I'm made nigh, I have peace with God. When you really have faith in the value of the blood of Jesus Christ, your conscience is purged. Chapter 12, verse 24. Verse 22. But ye are come into Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heaven in Jerusalem, into an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly of the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and the judge to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel's. 
So here we have come to the sprinkled blood, just as surely as we've come to Jerusalem and Mount Zion, just as sure as we are seated in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, we are under the sprinkled blood. First Peter chapter one, verse four. I'm sorry. First Peter chapter one, verse two. The elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit and obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. So, for us to go on to perfection, for us to go on to full sanctification, we need to be under the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Sprinkle on our ears, our hands, our feet, our conscience, our mind, and our whole body. Now, the next thing I have down here is the blood intercedes for us. We take this from the verse we just read in Hebrews chapter 12. We have come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Now, what did the blood of Abel speak? Who remembers what the blood of Abel said? Hmm? <coughs> Crying out for revenge, wasn't it? God asked Cain, where is your brother? He said, am I my brother's keeper? God said, the blood of your brother Abel cries out from the ground. Now the blood of Jesus is also speaking. What does the blood of Jesus say? Father, forgive them. They know what to do. So the blood of Christ is also interceding for us in the presence of God. First John, uh, Hebrews 9 Hebrews 9.12 also. Hebrews 9.12. Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption. So Christ entered into his intercessory ministry before the presence of God by his own blood. So with his blood, he's interceding on our behalf. And also in... Um, 1 John chapter 5, verse 8, we are told that the blood bears witness in heaven. It bears witness of our redemption in heaven. That's number 9, intercede. Number 10, going back to Hebrews chapter 10, the blood gives us boldness. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. This is the 10th work of the blood in our lives. Hebrews chapter 10 We'll begin reading at verse 17. And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, through his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled, from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. So you remember how the high priest entered into the most holy place, not without blood, on behalf of the people. So Christ has already entered into the <clears throat> most holy place with his own blood on our behalf. Therefore, we can now have boldness through faith in that blood to enter in also, right in the very presence of God. Now, this is meaningful and applicable when we go to prayer. If when you go to prayer, you have any feeling of heaviness or unworthiness, oh, well, God never answers my prayers anyway, so you just go through the routine, mumble, 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 or say some funny words, and you have no real breakthrough in prayer, 
is probably because you don't feel you have real access to God. And then and another brother who's no more righteous than you are in his own personal life, he goes in and enjoys God and touches God and comes out with a mighty blessing. The difference is one man has faith in the blood of Jesus Christ and the other man does not. So prayer becomes a real experience with God when we come through faith in the blood of Jesus Christ with boldness. Now the devil will say, well, who do you think you are? God's not going to answer your prayer. He didn't answer last week. He won't answer this week either. <laughs> He'll try his best to discourage you from touching God in prayer. But if you have boldness through the blood of Jesus Christ, you can enter into the holiest. Eleven, the blood sanctifies us. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29. Of how much sore punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done this by the the Spirit of grace. So it's the blood of the covenant that sanctifies us. In the shedding of his blood, we are sanctified. That means we are set apart and considered holy or called saints by the blood of Jesus Christ. Now also in chapter 13, verse 12, Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered without the gate. So sanctification is not by our own efforts. Sanctification, again, is through faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. And the more steadfastly, the more confidently and boldly we trust in the power of the blood of Jesus Christ, the more effective will be God's sanctifying grace in our own life. Number 12, the blood also makes us perfect. Again, Hebrews chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well, pleasing in his sight through Christ Jesus, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So again, it's the blood of the everlasting covenant make, through which God makes us perfect in every good work to do his will. And also in chapter 10, verse 14, Speaking again of the sacrifice of Christ. For by one offering he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. So through the offering up of Jesus, the shedding of his blood, we have forgiveness of sins in verse 12. We have sanctification in verse 10. We have perfection in verse 14. All through the offering up of Jesus Christ as our sacrifice. So we will reach perfection as we continue to trust in and abide under the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, God has revealed to me recently, and it caused me a great deal of joy, and I'm absolutely convinced of it, beyond any shadow of doubt, that any soul who puts their full trust and confidence in the Savior Jesus Christ shall be saved, sanctified, and perfected, made ready for the coming Lord. I have no doubt about it at all. Now, if we draw back, of course, God has no pleasure in those that draw back unto perdition. But we are not them that draw back unto perdition, but them that believe to the saving of the soul. So we are made partakers of Christ if we hold fast the confidence of our rejoicing for him unto the end. Being confident of this very thing that he which hath begun the good work in you will perfect it for the day of Jesus Christ. So God wants us. Of course, he chastens us. We have to do our disciplines. We have to take our punishments. We have to be 
exhorted and scolded. We have to make our restitutions. We have to ask pardon. We have to humble ourselves. We have to win souls. We have to read the Bible. We have to pray. We have to preach. We have to do church work. We have to, we have to do so many things. That's all true. But none of these things are ever going to make us perfect and sanctified. We are sanctified through the offering up of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And it's the blood of Jesus Christ, faith in that blood, which will accomplish all these marvelous things for us and bring it to perfection. Because that blood is a living source of life. This is the last point I want to bring out. Number 13, John chapter 6, verse 55. The blood imparts life, imparts the very life of God into us. John chapter 6, we begin reading in verse 53. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, ye have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in him, and I dwelleth in me, and I in him. As the living Father hath sent me, and I live by the Father, so he that eateth me, he shall live by me. And this is that bread which, will come, which came down from heaven, not as your fathers that eat man and are dead. He that eateth of this bread shall live forever. So the blood of Jesus Christ did all these marvelous works in our lives as we have faith. But as we come daily to the blood and even learn to abide in communion with the blood of Jesus Christ, is not the cup that we drink the communion of the blood of Jesus Christ? Then God's life is imparted into us and built up in us, and we become perfected in him. Just like the Israelites, they ate that manna, and they drank that water from the rock, and finally every cell in their body was made out of manna, and not of water. So as we eat and drink of Christ for a period of time, finally we become made out of him completely and totally perfect in his sight. So let's praise God for the work of the blood in our lives and come to the blood today.